0: After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And, in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And, of course, we'll
1: have a bit of fun along the way. In a career spanning three decades, writer, actor, broadcaster and comedian Phil Jupitus has become a familiar face on our television screens, appearing on everything from BBC Two's seminal music panel show Never Mind the Buzzcocks to presiding over the BBC's Glastonbury coverage. Jupitus can also boast being the first ever voice heard on BBC Six Music when the station launched in 2002. This was followed by a successful stint replacing Michael Ball as Edna Turnblad in the West End production of Hairspray to rave reviews, and made the edgy comic into a theatrical star. I caught up with Phil on set of the most southern leg of his nationwide tour to talk comedy, radio and life on the road. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Phil Jupitus. The first time I sort of remember be, being aware of you on television was on the comedy panel show Gag Tag. Oh man, yeah. What are your memories of working with the great Bob Monkhouse? The thing about um, uh, Bob
0: Monkhouse, uh, when when I worked with him on Gagtail, it was really weird. The first time we met, you know, um, it was he... There's a very weird thing with Monkhouse in that he knew material that I hadn't really been doing for long. He he came up to me and he went, oh, there's a bit you're doing at the minute about um, minicab drivers... Uh, on the moon. That's really, really good. And it's maybe two months old. And I'm like, it's not. Um, he's not been going to the banana in Ballamouth. And it's House just knew everybody who was connected with comedy, and, and there were people that used to go to gigs and kind of report back to him. He was, he was, he was extraordinary. He was a very, very clever, at always keeping himself up to date. What Bob did was, was he had three writers, right? So. Um, he had Jez, who was young and one of Jonathan Ross's writers. Colin, who is an old. Uh, Colin used to write for Whoopee Comic. He yeah, was like, yeah. We know Colin quite well. He's, yeah, yeah. A friend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And John Junkin. Yeah. And so Bob used those three writers. Uh, and they would give him stuff, and he would take stuff, so Junkin was very sort of traditional end-of-the-peer-like musical. Colin was just a really solid gag writer. Colin was just like the... He was like sort of the engine room, and then Jez was the up-to-date hip stuff, And, and Bob would take those three different kind of lots of stuff, and he could somehow blend them, and using that crazy mind of his, put his own spin on it. So I what i what i learned from monkey was that is that there's kind of there's no shame in using writers uh for a, for a stand-up to do it i personally don't do it because i i i don't know why i've got some sort of block i just can't i have to do all my own stuff but bob used writers really creatively but through their input he developed his own very singular voice he was brilliant i mean he's and incredibly encouraging of, of young comedians. One of Bob's favourite comics was a guy, I don't know if you know, do you know Kevin McCarthy? He used to be the man with a beard, he was known as. And McCarthy was was um, probably Bob's favourite comic on the circuit, but Kev was very linear and just, just told very straight sort of jokes. So, yeah, I was just completely stunned by how sort of scholarly Bob was about... Um, about the world of comedy, um, but just how much he knew about what people were up to at the minute, and also he, there were comics out there. He said, there's, "He said the thing about comedians is, is they're always sort of their worst enemy is themselves. They're always held, held back by their own kind of limited horizons." And he always, uh, Bob said that uh, my, another one of Bob's favourites, and he said, "Should be have his own TV show and should be absolutely huge." Was Billy Pierce? monkey house loved billy pierce who and but pilly never kind of billy had a comfort zone he was happy in, and he never wanted to go out of that and so yeah yeah so bob was a bit like i don't know really i was always incredibly fond of him if i ever saw he was in a building i'd always track him down it was a it was a it was a very sad day when you know we lost bob but uh yeah yeah great a great bloke really yeah proper um yeah proper and I tell you who has very much sort of picked up his mantle is Jimmy Carr now. And Jimmy is writing about comedy. And Jimmy pretty much knows as much about... In the same sort of areas, Jimmy very much knows what your gag is like, what your style is like. And he's got a very, very kind of um, academic approach to, to, to comedy um, in that he knows a lot. He's written books about it. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Good lad.
1: So... Gag Tag was your first regular appointment of a panel mm. show. Um, that's obviously something now you've become synonymous with throughout your career. Why do you think you're so connected with that type of show? I think the, the,
0: the panel shows, um, I mean, why I uh, uh, sit well on them, I think it's because the more that you do of them, the more you understand the grammar of how a panel show works, and you're always learning about them. Um, and the thing is, uh, it took me... Here's the thing, you know, it took me a while to learn this. I reckon it wasn't for a good eight years that I realised that um, going on the panel shows is not about what you do. Uh, It's not about uh, trying to get jokes in, actually. Those panel shows, it is about listening to what every single person on the panel is saying. You just listen to them. And then it has a much more natural feel. And so you know i think that what you're doing is you're it's almost the best panel shows always it's like an ensemble piece So an initial idea will come from someone on the panel and uh then i will amplify or twist what they have said so so i'll, I'll you'll blow it up so and then maybe bill bailey will be on and bill will take it even further what i've done what i've done in the blowing up of it so it's it's a bit like how when you see comedy writers in a room and they write together. It's like a sort of the best panel games are almost like an ensemble thing where everyone is sort of resonating with each other. That's when they work really well. And um, what always, to me, kind of slows a panel game down when you're on it is someone who thinks, anyone that thinks, you know, I must do jokes, I must get jokes in. If they're too obviously just thinking about, How they're going to sound when the edit happens? That's it. Forget that completely. Forget that. You've actually got to shut everything down and just listen to what other people are saying. There's been times on QI and QI is the one that really makes me nervous. When I sit there, you know, twenty minutes can go by and I've not said anything in the recordings, and that always gets tightened up in the edit. And I say to people when they come on the show, you know, when they're very first on the show, I said the thing. I said the thing is. It's just listen to what's being said and you'll think of something to say. And the thing is, is not only will you think of something to say, if you've been quiet for a bit, Sandy will always go to a guest that's been quiet and will we'll draw them into the conversation, you know. That, that's the thing about when John Lloyd sort of came up with QI, That he wanted that vibe of, like, you know, when you go out for a meal with mates and you're all sat around and you're, 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 you're sort of, you know shooting the breeze with each other. It's, it's a less pressured kind of way for comedy to emerge organically. And so I think that because I used to like being... chat with funny people, I always used to dig. And I always used to do it with my mates when I was a kid. And when I was a teenager, we used to go out and we used to go to gigs and just all the, you know, the mucking around with each other that would happen in the train on the way home. It's that sort of... That social playing around and, and having a laugh with a gang of people... I've always it's always been one of my favorite things you know and so those shows are a method of turning that into 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 a a form of entertainment
1: yeah and in 1997 you united with comic talents Mark Lamar and the late Sean Hughes for the popular music panel show nevermind the Buzzcocks what were your first impressions of the show well,
0: I, I made all the mistakes I've just told you not to do. I tried to be funny. I used to write stuff for it. I used to really, really you know try too hard, and I didn't listen to people because I was just waiting for my... i waiting for a gap in the people talking just to get the joke in. So what you're thinking about is your joke and how it, you can get it in, and you're not listening to the other people. So the first few years on Buzzcocks, oh, awful, dreadful. And then... And then you kind of once you realize that it's it's, it's, less, it's a less is more thing stop trying so hard just kind of enjoy the people you're with and enjoy the evening and and kind of just listen to what's going on you know um yeah it's uh it was it was uh, it was a, it was fun to kind of discover through the show what I liked was was that going and doing QI which was a lot less confrontational so Buzzcocks was a bit feisty, it had to be said. Um, but QI was much more relaxed. And I basically brought my QI... Once I brought my QI energy to Buzzcocks, uh, that was a lot more fun. It was certainly... Uh, yeah, the early days, it was... Uh, I mean, it was very exciting to be on a show that, that that blew up so big so quickly. It became very popular. And it lasted for 18 years. So it was, uh, um, yeah, it was a great... Uh, You know, I'm I'm very fond of Buzzcocks and I had a lot of fun doing it in its various iterations and I'm quite proud of the fact that I managed to to make 280 shows. That one show that I didn't make will eat away at me for the rest of my life. That one show that Frankie Boyle was me for the night, poor Frankie. I'll never forget that.
1: (laughs) So... Never mind The Bugs Cox wasn't the only panel show that you became invested in. Um, 2000, you teamed up with Jonathan Ross and Julian Clary for its only TV, but I like it. Mm. That was a very funny show, but why do you think it didn't last for any longer than four series? Um, it's, it's difficult to say, really.
0: It was, um, the, the I think, the BBC One panel shows, I'm not entirely sure why they didn't, you know, really... Because uh, they had, Have I Got News For You was on BBC One and it's still there. And things like what I lie to you these days are doing quite well I, and it's only TV but i like it i i again i i enjoyed doing the the two series that I did of it were uh, were, were fun but um it was uh i'm not sure why and I, I never i never whenever when a show kept, got cancelled my thing is with television is it's such a transient medium and I'm fully aware that when new people come in and start running TV companies, there's shows that they just don't like, that they just, well, I don't want that. But for no reason, it could rate really, really... I mean, Buscox, numbers-wise, was doing perfectly well at BBC Two. And they'd just been hemorrhaging viewers um, with the new Top Gear. The new Top Gear first series just died on its arse. And so they there we were, you know, needing to... There was BBC Two and it got rid of Buzzcocks as well, which was a, a regular one and a half million viewers. And that's for BBC Two. That's big numbers. Mm. And so, I mean, um, it's only TV. I don't know why it went. I never asked why it went. I just think that it's, that's just the nature of television. The thing is, I'm surprised Buzzcocks lasted for 18 years. Really surprised. I'm not joking. Once we'd done sort of three, four years, I genuinely kept thinking this will be cancelled any 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 minute now we we'll get the phone call and it'll be gone, you know. So that's that's the kind of... That was my sort of operating mindset, was at the end of every series of Buzzcocks from basically 2001 onwards, I thought, well, that was fun, but that'll be that. That won't be coming back. And I never found out. So bear in mind, we used to record them September, October, November, sometimes into December. So we do September, October, November, we do Buzzcocks. Um... And I wouldn't find out until May that I'd be doing Buscocks in September. So I'd finish it in finish it in December, and then I'd have, so December, January, February, March. I'd have six months every year where I didn't know if I'd have a job in the autumn or not, which was a bit weird. So I used to try and work quite hard <laughs> on my off time. I did like it when other things came. I like it's only TV, you know, all the other things that came along. You know, um and uh QI and stuff like that. I did QI quite a bit in the early series and then they realized that actually the show sort of functioned better if they got a much more diverse panel. So I used to do four or five QIs in the early series, you know. I got quite lucky. I used to do quite a few in a series and then and then they kind of pared uh, paired that back a bit. So generally I'll do two a series.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Let's talk about radio for a minute, yeah, what sort of accolade is it to know that you were the first ever voice to be heard on b b c six music it's
0: one of those it's one of those being the first voice on a radio station it's one of those things where you just you just oh remember that, that you were that guy who was there who did that and that that's all it was you were just the you happened to be the guy in the room at the time it was i think it was just uh it was a laugh and certainly the passion of the people that put six music together um was really quite sort of infectious. And the fact that they, for two years, they were working on this thing at the BBC in a little, basically in a cupboard in the basement. They were putting together this thing that went under the name of Network Y. And they were trying to come up with a kind of hybrid sort of the music policy of the London station GLR. What they often don't talk about when they talk about Six Music is that GLR had a really much more kind of alternative music policy daytime to either Radio 1 or Radio 2. And so it was this weird middle ground. And all the people in London would say, oh, we really love JLR because it plays such mad stuff during the day, really stuff you're not expecting to hear, much more indie, uh, you know, um uh, slightly off-kilter vintage stuff. It was it was great. But... um and then they kind of took that template and said, "Well, we could do a national station." And when the, they realised that the, with the digital explosion, they'd have new stations, and so you got um, you got uh, you got BBC um, uh, Seven, which was which became Four Extra, of course, which was doing all the old archive comedy and Radio Four stuff, um, uh, Asian Network, Five Live Sports Extra, which sort of had the Test match on all the day, um, Six, you know, and it was uh, it was it was. Kind of interesting to be an organisation that was so sort of set in its ways, um, but seeing it kind of kind of exploring new avenues and new ways of doing things. Um, the shame of it, of course, being was that they didn't have a way of calculating the listeners to six music for we didn't get accurate audience figures for three years no four years four years so i was on six music for four years before we got accurate audience figures and then when we did get them i thought they seemed a bit low they said yeah we've got 150,000 listeners and i'm like "No, nah, no, nah, we've got more than that i said i said we've got online listeners they know no we can't count online that's not like what we can't count online listeners and all of the listeners that I was interacting with on the show for four years listened online there were there were a few people that had dab radios, but the dab radios for, here's the thing was we were we were we we started on a format so we started with this show on a technical format that you couldn't buy in the shops. You couldn't get the digital radios. Pure were knocking them out as quick as they could. And then after about a year on Six Music, Argos started selling digital radios. So I went to Argos in South End. I bought 10 and was giving them to mates. You know, they were 99 pound a pop. And I bought 10 of these radios. My mum got one. Uh, mum got one. Dad got one. My brother, my sister. Um, uh, my father-in-law and mother-in-law, they got one. And we just, I gave these things out. And yeah, it was just... Uh, yeah, it was just kind of weird. But a great I mean I I love my time on Six Music working with everyone that works on the show especially Phil Wilding and Joe Tyler who kind of were, produced me in those early days. Uh, and yeah, it was yeah, it was it was exciting. It was it was exciting, but uh, yeah, you know. Jobs come, jobs go. I I left rather than, you know, I left
1: before I kind of got the feeling that they were going to ask me to leave
0: and I left before they got the
1: chance. So, um, 2009, you secured the part of Edna Turnblad, ah, replacing yeah. Michael Ball for the West End version of Hairspray. What was it about the role that made it so appealing? Um, so, so the my the story of how I
0: got Hairspray. So, um, so uh, Hairspray had been on, had been running for a while, and was quite successful. And obviously, they were thinking about at some point they were going to have to get new casting, and Mel Smith was playing. Um, The late Mel Smith was playing um, Wilbur. Is it Wilbur? Yeah. Um, Turnblad, her her husband, Edna's husband. And I got originally asked if I would like to be the husband, to be Wilbur. When Mel Smith left, would I like to come in and be Wilbur Turnblad? And and so I went to rehearsals um, and kind of worked up a couple of songs... And then went into the audition for it. And I did the audition. And my agent phoned me up and, and said, um, they said uh, they really enjoyed what you did and I thought it was really good, but they think you're not quite right for Wilbur. And I'm like, oh, well, never mind, you know, these things. It would have been nice to kind of do it. And she went, ah, 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 ah. But how do you feel about playing Edna? And... I remember when I watched it the first time, I was watching Mel Smith with a view to playing Wilbur, but I kept looking at Michael Ball going, that looks like a laugh. That looks like a right laugh. Dressing up as a big lady. For money, Josh. For money. Dressing up as a woman in London for money was something I never envisioned having to do. But uh, here I was. And, yeah, and uh, and I did it, and it was by miles the scariest gig I've ever had. I mean... I've done lots of things, you know. A touring with Madness was quite, you know, uh, touring with a blockhead, singing with the Bonzos. Uh, but yeah, that going on stage, the opening night in Hairspray, I think's the most terrified I've ever been before I went on stage. It's one of your most,
1: one easy. of your proudest achievements as well.
0: I, it, weirdly, yeah. I mean, if I, if, if I'm going to say my three sort of proudest moments, and they're they're odd and they're quite you know weird, but it would be uh, definitely singing for the Bonzo Dog Doo Band doing hairspray for three months in the West End. Uh, and uh, there was a kids' TV show that didn't really do a lot of business called A Bottom Knocker Street, which was on ITV, which I was in about 30 episodes of. And uh, it didn't get recommissioned, but I enjoyed doing that, I think, more than any other job I've done. Doing, I was playing a mad uh, mayor of a town called Councillor Cowdery who hated kids, and I was arguing with kids every week and it was just i'd know was just this i just kind of was sticking gags in for the grown-ups and for my mates in this show because they didn't have time to film again and so it was like it was a colossal exercise in misbehavior but my mates that have seen it said that's why don't you do more of that that was really good but you know uh had my chance and uh it's nice uh, the weird thing is is with the career and looking back on it i've done loads and loads of great things once so i did i i, I did a sitcom once I did a kids T V series once, I was in a film once, you know, and it's that that'll do. That'll do for me, you know. I, I had to go at things I've always wondered what it'd be like, you know. Um um I did a pilot hosting a panel game once that I did not like. I quite like being out on the edges. I think I can't drive a panel game, you have to behave yourself too much. It's not it's not it's not in my wheelhouse, no, not doable.
1: Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks very much. We'll let you get on with some nice uh, one. important okay. bits now. No, no, no. <laughs> this is important too, man. Thank you
0: so
1: much
0: no, for your, your
1: time. You Cheers. A big thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates of forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.